following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. I look at 1 Samuel chapter 24 to read for you this chapter. It's a short chapter, but important. This is certainly one of the positive moments in David's life. There are definitely negative moments, but here we can look to him for a godlike example and learn, I think, from what God was doing in and through him. 1 Samuel 24, listen to God's word. When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goats' rocks. And he came to the sheepfolds, by the way, where there was a cave. And Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave. And the men of David said to him, Here is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand. You shall do to him as it seems good to you. David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Afterward, David's heart struck him because he had cut the corner of Saul's robe. And he said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. Afterward, David also arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, My Lord, the king! When Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. And David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men who say, Behold, David seeks your harm? Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave, and some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said I will not put my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand. For by the fact that I cut off this corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. May the Lord judge between me and you, and the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancients says, out of the wicked comes wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. After whom? Has the king of Israel come out? After whom do you pursue? After a dead dog? After a flea? May the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. As soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, Is that your voice, my son David? 
And he lifted up his voice and he wept. He said to David, you are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me with good, whereas I have repaid you with evil. You have declared this day how you have dealt well with me, in that you did not kill me when the Lord put me into your hands. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. And now behold, I know that you shall surely be king, and the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Swear to me, therefore, by the Lord, that you will not cut off my offspring after me, and you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. And David swore this to Saul, and Saul went home. But David and his men went up to the stronghold. And this is God's holy word to us. John Perkins was an African-American man born in a very poor background in Mississippi many years ago. Grew up in poverty, did not know the Lord until his adult life. He experienced a very sound conversion to come to Christ and became a pastor. And John Perkins founded a ministry that became quite well known, Calvary Ministries in Mendenhall, Mississippi. In February of 1970, a van containing several black college students who were working for civil rights was pulled over by police in the town of Brandon, Mississippi. John Perkins and another pastor knew these students and heard what had happened, and they went down to the jail hoping to be able to bail the students out. Instead, they were immediately arrested without any charge put against them. They were put in a cell, and they were brutally beaten and kicked to unconsciousness, both of them. Perkins was so badly hurt by the clubs and kicks to his head in particular that friends thought he would die. He didn't. But John Perkins, by his own testimony, as he wrote about this later, said something did die in that cell. It was something inside of him. It was the desire for revenge and the hatred that he thought he would naturally experience towards these persecutors. He said, I was laying there on the floor in the cold concrete, bleeding, and all my hatred died. John Perkins wrote, I remember the twisted faces of those policemen who seemed to me like demons almost. They were out of their senses with hatred. Their racism seemed to make them feel like somebody as they vaunted their limited power over myself and my companion. But he said, I just couldn't hate them back. I could only pity them. I realized that I wanted to be able to live on and live out the true gospel of Jesus, which could heal people like this, too. Well, Matthew 5, 44 is where we read the words of Jesus. Love your enemies, I tell you. Pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons and daughters of your Father in heaven. Of all the hard commands of Jesus, maybe there isn't a harder one than that if we contemplate doing it in our human strength because it's absolutely contrary to who and what we are. Anyone who offends us or does us harm, we don't love. We don't usually pray for them. And we certainly aren't ready to act 
well and kindly towards them. We would say that's a very hard thing that Jesus requested. Yes, indeed it is. And because it's completely against our human nature, it's something we have to approach and know that only God's grace at work in us as it was working in John Perkins will allow us to do that. We have a great example in David's life here in 1 Samuel 24 today and how to actually take the upper hand with an enemy without taking vengeance. We've seen how Saul the king has been chasing David. He went from listening to him sing psalms in a way that soothed his paranoid, perhaps mentally ill, demon-tormented spirit to throwing spears at David and chasing him all over the land. And now, hearing where he is, he has to take 3,000 men to go and find David, who has a few hundred under his command. Well, he found him at this place called En Gedi that you can visit today. It's a bit of an oasis near the shore of the Dead Sea. Dead Sea is not a very beautiful place for the the most part, but this is a, a nice place near the Dead Sea. It's green there. There's some famous springs, and there are limestone caverns, some of them quite large, I'm told, could conceal 500 men or more, and you might go in and not even know that that many people were in there because of the size of of several of those caves. You read what we had here. Quite suddenly, the fugitive is in a role reversal. David was in a position to kill Saul rather easily. And his men said, do it. Here's the moment, David. Your destiny can be realized. Strike him down. We don't know whether Saul cast his robe off to one side or whether quite possibly he went to sleep, took a little nap in the cool of the cave. Somehow David was able to approach in a stealthy way. And his men must have thought to themselves, this is it. We're now going to be the king's honor guard. And they saw his dagger lifted but they were amazed to realize all he did was cut a piece of cloth from the corner of the king's robe and then snuck back to them again. David was being tested by God in a trial by fire to make him a king. And he wouldn't be ready to wear his crown until he passed a test like this and hopefully passed it with honor. I see in David today something I'm going to call radical reverence for God, for it was a centering upon God and who God was and what God asked of him that determined everything that happened in this chapter. And each of the points I make are from this chapter are going to have those words, radical reverence for God. He would not compromise in arriving at the goal that God had destined him for. He would do it God's way or no way at all. And I believe There's a correspondence that you and I can learn to know something about this radical reverence in our own lives. First of all, I say to you that radical reverence for God means I must not force the timing of his will. You see, here are David and his men. Their eyes are used to the dark, and uh, in comes Saul blinking. You know how it is. You go into some really dark place, and you can't see anything at first. And... David has the moment of advantage, and his men say, strike now. David, if you won't do it, any one of us will be glad to do it for you. And these men, it seems, thought that a good end could be attained by an evil means, teaching us that you cannot ever separate the means 
in the end. It's a mistake that believers make to assume sometimes that the best way to find the will of God in some circumstance or providence that's presented in your life, if, if an opportunity appears, grab hold of it. If you've been praying, God lead me, and there suddenly is the job offer, or there suddenly is a shift in circumstances, take hold of it. By all means, this is it. That's not really what Scripture advises. Scripture advises us to act carefully, to pray, to examine, to seek advice, to find out are there any biblical principles involved that uh, I might be violating by taking hold of this particular opportunity. Not everything that presents itself to me has the green light of God's permission on it. I certainly experienced this early in my ministry days. I, I would tell you that at least one call of the churches that I've served was an opportunity that came along in a rather golden way, bigger salary. I was quite young. It looked very enticing. I thought, surely this is, this is of God. And there were some things that were indicating caution, go slow. But I didn't show caution, and I didn't go slow, and I took hold, and I moved into a situation that maybe I thought later I shouldn't be in. Now, God uses everything, even our mistakes, and I could admit that today. But it's very easy to see something and say, this is it, I must go. Even if I have to kind of bend things or manipulate things a little bit to make it happen the way I want it to happen. The temptation that David experienced could be compared to Jesus in the desert. Being tempted of Satan early in his ministry. Three gospels take pains to tell us about those temptations. And he was offered... You know, the, the evil one spoke, we would think, within his mind and spirit and said through him, Jesus, you can have it all. You can be the all-powerful rule with, ruler with no rival in all these cities, not just of Jerusalem and Judea, but the whole surrounding world. You could knock Caesar off his throne very easily. Just do it. And the opportunity was real. He could have done it. But Jesus knew he couldn't do it and fulfill the will of God, even though the end goal awaiting him was an agonizing cross. It's easy for us to grab opportunities and just run with them without waiting for God. Whether you're a college student seeking a first career opportunity, whether you're somebody asking, who should I marry? This person, that person, neither of the above. Whatever you're facing in your life, the Scripture often says the words of Exodus 14, stand still, stand still first and see the salvation of the Lord. Take God's Word up and ask yourself, is, there, is this decision one that I can embrace and say, God's Word gives me good confidence about this. I'm not having to violate his word at all. I go to perhaps a more mature Christian friend and say, what do you think? Is this wise? Is this discerning? And I listen and try to hear what they're saying. An older Bible commentator named William Blakey, a Scotsman, wrote about this passage. I quote a few sentences from him. He said, the heart that is profoundly impressed with the absolute goodness of God's arrangements for life, cannot desire to leap ahead of that in any matter, great or small. How can good come, he said, by forcing arrangements out of the divine order? 
When we pray, thy will be done on earth as in heaven, surely heaven does not favor impatience for a speedier fulfillment of events beyond what God has ordained. Wise advice. But isn't it true that the younger we are, the more impatient we are? Not that seniors completely give up all their impatience, but we learn the hard way to wait and be still and to pray. David wrote in another occasion in Psalm 37, Be still before the Lord. Wait patiently for him. Do not fret when men succeed in their ways or carry out wicked schemes. Refrain from anger. Turn from wrath. For evil men will be cut off. But those who hope in the Lord will inherit the land. I must not force the timing of God's will. Secondly, I can say this about radical reverence for God. It means I dare not attack an authority that he has placed over me. Now, quite forcefully in this passage, verses 6 and 11, David said, God forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or lift my hand against him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. This is Saul he was talking about. Would Saul have killed David? If, if the table was turned in that cave and David wandered in and Saul happened to be there armed and ready to go, would he have killed David? Absolutely. I think without a question. Has Saul been pursuing him for months and, and would do so many more months and do just about anything to capture this man who had done him no harm? Absolutely. But David would not return that animosity because Saul was in an office of authority to which God had installed him. And that office deserved all respect. You see, cutting the corner of Saul's robe wasn't just a harmless little joke so he could say, ha ha, look what I did. Not at all. The king's robe represented his office. Earlier we heard that Jonathan, the prince, the next successor to the throne by natural descent, gave his robe to David. That was a token of, I'm giving you succession to be king. So this damaged robe was seen as really an attack on the kingdom and an assault on God himself because God had appointed Saul. David was conscience-stricken by doing what you would say is a very little thing because he saw it as assaulting God who had put Saul in the office. It wasn't whether Saul was a good guy or a bad guy. You could say he was a bad guy all the way. He deserved almost zero respect as a person. But his office deserved the same respect you would give to God. I'm told that they say in the Marine Corps, I'm sure to have a Marine report to me after service and straighten this out, but I think the Marine Corps, they say, you salute the office, not the man. You might be a corporal or a private and your officer in charge is a scoundrel, but you'd better salute the office, no matter what you think of the man. And Christians in the New Testament era are taught this same type of thing. It is God who has put governing authorities over us at all kinds of levels, from presidents and congresses and courts and local magistrates and so on. God has established a role for government, human government, with sinful men and women in its offices. I'm always struck by the idea that Paul 
writes in Romans 13 to submit to the governing authorities when it was Nero Caesar who was the ultimate power of that whole part of the world. One of the absolute worst Roman rules of all times. Cruel, mindless, selfish, egomaniac Nero. And with him in charge, Paul wrote under the inspiration of God in Romans 13, everyone must submit himself to governing authorities for there's no authority except that which God has established. Consequently, Paul said, he, he rubs our faces in it a little bit, he who rebels against the authority is rebelling against God. The Westminster Confession of Faith tries to embody this principle in chapter 23. We read this, God the supreme king has ordained the civil magistrate to be under him over the people for God's glory and the public good. So it is the duty of citizens to pray for their magistrates, honor their persons, pay them tribute and other dues, and obey their lawful commands being subject to their authority for conscience' sake. The civil authority who violates the trust God gives him will face God and an accounting to God. But the only way they face us is at the voting booth where we are justified, perhaps, in objecting to them. And of course we speak out. Of course we have free speech. Of course we can work for someone else's political campaign. Of course there's a way for us to say what they're doing is not right, is not biblical. It should be this way. We need to remember that God has established even sinful people to bring the order that we require to have a society. If we don't have that kind of a society, ladies and gentlemen, we have ISIS where everybody just wipes out everybody who disagrees with them. If we honor a God-authorized authority, whether governor, president, senator, judge, elder, pastor, mayor, We actually are honoring God. And there's a careful balance to be struck there in our difficult day and age, to be sure. Now, finally today, 1 Samuel 24 teaches that radical reverence for God lets me face human opposition with hot coals of God's wrath. What does that mean? I'm thinking, you might imagine, some of you who know the Scripture well, know I might be thinking of Romans 12, verses 18 and following. That crucial passage reads this way. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Now, notice it says, as far as it, is, or as far as it depends on you. The Scripture is very realistic. It realizes sometimes we can't control animosity. But live at peace with everyone if you can. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. Remember who the final judge is, in other words. So, on the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not yourself be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. That's exactly what was going on in 1 Samuel 24. You see Saul responding to the burning coals of shame heaped on his head. He literally wept. You would have thought Saul would say, there's 3,000 men right around the corner somewhere. Come on, troops, we've got David. Get him. 
Instead, he weeps. And he repents, at least for a moment. Now, I would editorially say to you that as repentance is rated, this is about a 1.5 on a scale of 10 because it very quickly changes. But at least for the moment, Saul is utterly shamed. And he says, David, my son, you have done me good while I only seeked, sought to do evil. I spoke earlier of John Perkins. I had an opportunity 30 years ago to hear the man speak and to sit down at a lunch table with him. And I have to paraphrase, but I do remember pretty well things he said that day. He said something like this to us when he was talking about his story and and that particular incident of being beaten that way, and that wasn't the only time something like that happened to him. He said, the Spirit of God worked on me that day as I lay on that cell floor bleeding. An image formed in my mind of Christ on the cross, knowing that Jesus was accused, Jesus was beaten, Jesus was condemned, Jesus forgave. And he said, God would not allow that to go out of my mind, and it guided my life. You know, you'll read about it in your newspaper or hear it on the TV as you pick up news in the next 48 hours. I would guess you'll hear that in the streets of Lancaster, where someone was provoked in some way, big or small, they took out a gun and shot somebody. You know the common terrorist mentality. That's certainly all over the news. You don't even have to have an antagonism. Just attack the general public to try to express your foolish philosophy of life. Kill dozens of people with bombs who you don't even know. Think about that. Think about the underlying philosophy of that. I am at war with everybody. How absurd. How can we live that way? People live attuned to what I would call a road rage level of personal relationship. And that doesn't just happen on the highway. I just experienced it last night on the highway. A guy went roaring by me. I'm now in the category of the slow guy that the young guys don't want to drive behind, you know. I think I used to be in the other category. My wife has pointed out that I probably a few times did what people do to me. She's smiling at me down there. I went roaring around me in a place where it wasn't very safe to pass out. What is his problem? I'm going 40. Well, he was living by the road rage mentality. It was a 45-mile zone, by the way. Uh, It was, really. Uh, This is how people live. You know, you're in my way. You brushed against me. You poked me. I'll poke you so hard, you're going to fall right down. I'll show you. And this is the way people live. This is the way they think they have to live. The Scripture calls us, as children of God in Jesus Christ, to stake out higher moral ground. Even if it's a small hill of higher moral ground, in a fairly trivial relational issue, you need to stake out that ground and know there might be a cross in the middle of that ground where you might be called to just let some of your rights be crucified and put to death because your rights are not the most important thing in the whole world. A shining text from the New Testament that has never ceased to speak to me. It's one of those texts that I just read and I don't even know how I can comment on it. It's so eloquent.
is 1 Peter 2.23. Speaking of Jesus, when they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Now, you should read that and say, how in the world can I do that? I'm not the Son of God. I'm not Jesus. And great, I'm glad you know that. You need to know that. But we are called to do that by the same Holy Spirit who indwelt Jesus and gave him the grace and mercy and humility to do that. We can say, Father, let me put to death my pride my I must be served, I am king, I am right. Let me lay that down as Jesus did. Give me the grace to do that. And if indeed another verse that we believe and often quote is true, we can do it because we like to quote from Philippians, I can do everything through him who gives me strength. So it is a work of divine grace that David showed in in sparing Saul. He was modeling Christ centuries before the fact here. He was showing an all-grace response that we can ask God to show through us. In our dog-eat-dog-you-poke-me-and-I'll-poke-you-harder world, sometimes at least people will stop and recognize this kind of a response. Now, sometimes they won't. They'll just bulldoze the guy that passed me last night. I'm sure he probably had choice words for me as he was going on by, and he's long forgotten about me. And I didn't do anything in particular in that situation that he would have said, aha, that guy modeled Christ. No. But there are times when we can model Christ. And somebody's going to say, where does that come from? Is that person just a has no courage to stand up for himself, or is it something else? It looks like something I don't usually see. I wonder what that's all about. And the hot coals of conviction may be on their head, and there may be some real repentance that would be more authentic than Saul's was. Nevertheless, it's not our job to worry about what happens to them. The outcome of their soul is with God, not with us. At the very least, others may see in our actions a glimpse, a glimpse of the gospel of grace. And your radical reverence for God that substitutes for the normal human vengeance will leave people possibly stunned because they will have witnessed for an unforgettable moment what the Scripture calls Christ in you the hope of glory. Father, we ask that we might be those mirrors of Christ in us, that we might not have to live to always prove how great we are or how awful a thing it is that someone slights us or says bad about us or blocks us or just causes us a problem. It doesn't take a harder poke of our elbow to respond. Thank you for Jesus, who modeled this perfectly. Thank you for David, who modeled it so very well. Thank you for John Perkins, who also modeled it well. I pray that this might be seen in us 
and Christ alone might get the glory. Amen.